Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, hey everybody, how are you? What's going on out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is The Other People Show. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. I have a great episode to share with you today. My guest is Wendell Stevenson, author of a new novel entitled Margot. I remember feeling, you know, in my early 20s, having graduated and sort of bounced around with a few jobs and finding myself in Tbilisi in Georgia where I had gone to write stories absurdly enough and I remember just having a sort of you know one of those you know classic existential crises where you're like I'm nothing I've achieved nothing I've done nothing I'm 26 and I've done nothing you know and now it seems completely ridiculous at the time it felt very emotionally real So I think that's also part of what I would think I was trying to convey in Margot is that that stuff hurts deeply. It's hard to have perspective. It's hard to, to know what experiences to take or to accrue and how to become something when you don't know what that something is. Okay, that was Wendell Stevenson. Her new novel, Margot, is out there now from W.W. Norton and Company. It is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community founded almost 20 years ago at this point. These days, the site is edited by Joseph Grantham. You can sign up for the book club over at TheNervousBreakdown.com. It's pretty straightforward. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this podcast, so you can listen and then read or read and then listen. It's up to you. Margot is a novel about a young woman of great privilege, but ultimately precarious privilege, who is coming of age in the 1950s and the 1960s. Her name is Margot Thornson, and she is the product of a wealthy family back east, as they say. She lives in Long Island and in Park, you know, in a Park Avenue apartment in New York City. She is very bright and often very awkward. And she doesn't really totally fit into the social milieu into which she was born and in which she is being raised. She is, at heart, a science nerd. 
and a very ambitious young woman. And she is often at odds with her mother, who is old school, a very opinionated and strong-willed woman who has very fixed ideas about how the world works and what Margot should do with her life. The novel follows Margot from early childhood all the way into early adulthood as she is coming of age in the 1960s. So this is a decade that has been well documented for its social and political and cultural upheavals, sexual liberation, scientific discovery, the counterculture, and so on and so forth. Margot is a very intelligent and hugely engrossing work of fiction about a life. And in particular, it's about the life and difficulties of a young woman whose experiences, I think, are emblematic of her time period. Mid-century America, it is a novel that is certainly about class and gender and social change and generational conflict and ambition and what it means to be female, what it, and, and especially what it meant to be female in the world. So it also has a great cover, I should add. It's one of those novels with a great cover. There's like a young woman smoking a cigarette on the cover. It's one of those books. I had a great time talking with Wendell Stevenson. That conversation is coming up in just a couple of minutes. The Other People podcast, for those of you who might be new to the show, it is offered freely. I want you to know that the entire archive of this show, more than 800 episodes and counting, all of it is available for free. This is a listener-supported show. So what I'm counting on is I'm counting on listeners who love this show, who listen regularly, who get something from it, who appreciate it and find value in it. I'm counting on you, if that applies to you, to support the show if you would be so kind. That will allow me to continue to make the show. I don't have paywalls. I want this content to be accessible to everyone as easily as possible, but I do need your help to keep it going. And so to that end, I've tried to make it as easy as possible to support this show. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. It's a sliding scale, $1 a month, $3 a month, $5, 10, 20, whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, and what have you. So please support the show if you can. I would greatly appreciate it. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I do a weekly email newsletter. If you would like to subscribe for that, you can do so at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter at either place. It is essentially an enumerated list. I share news of the latest episodes of the podcast. I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both. It goes out once a week. That is it. I will not inundate you with email. It's free. So sign up for the newsletter if you are so inclined. I would also ask kindly if you are listening and you're, you know, you, you have a couple of minutes to spare, if you would please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. So if you listen on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, rate the show. If it's possible to write a review, please write a review. It helps the show in the algorithm. It helps us find new listeners. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. That's how you find it. When you get there, click on the subscribe button. Subscribe to the channel. It's free. You can also watch highlights or video clips of these interviews 
on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The Other People Podcast is all over social media. Follow the show on Twitter, at OtherPPL. If you have something to say to me, if you would like to offer some feedback or tell me a story, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And I have a novel out. Did you know that? I wrote a novel. It came out last year. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. It's my second novel. It's my third book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And it is a work of autofiction. It's about my life. If you want to know about that, you can read it or you can listen to it. You can listen to me read it in the audiobook. It's up to you. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there now waiting for you. Before we get started with Wendell Stevenson, I do have some mail to respond to. A listener named Glenn writes, Dear Brad, I've listened to other people for years now, and I was wondering how you approach your interviews. Do you conduct extensive research on your guests, or do you go in with limited knowledge? Do you listen to other interviews they've done? Do you simply rely on your natural curiosity? Have you ever felt intimidated by any guests? And if so, how do you dial down the anxiety? You have a lot of experience interviewing, and you seem very comfortable with it, so I was hoping you could give me a tip or two. Signed, Glenn. Well, thanks, Glenn, for listening and for writing. You have a lot of questions packed into this letter, so I'll try to go through them as quickly as possible one by one. How do I approach my interviews? Do I conduct extensive research or do I go in with limited knowledge? It's a little bit of both. I try to do some research, but I, don't, I try not to overdo it. I read the book and then I might poke around on the internet a little bit, but I don't like to overdo it on research because then I come in too freighted. It feels weird to be that prepared to talk to somebody. It's sort of like if you ever do it like a job interview and you get super prepared, even if you do a good job, it's a weird conversation. It's too much. It's unnatural. We're not meant to do that as human beings, to get super prepared and do all this recon on somebody. You know, I understand that it's kind of my job as the interviewer, but in a way, I think it's better to just be there as a person, as a human being talking to somebody. Do I listen to other interviews they've done? Sometimes, but not too much. Because again, then it starts to mess with my head. It's like, well, do they need to talk to me? Have they already done the interview? Are they going to do the same interview with me that they did with somebody else? You know, I almost prefer to go in cold rather than get loaded up on all their previous media appearances. But sometimes I dip in a little bit. Have you ever felt intimidated by any guests? Yes, sometimes occasionally, not too much, but I, you know, at this point I can handle it, but there are still times when you'll be getting ready to talk to somebody. And it's like, you know, she has three degrees from Yale where she graduated magna cum laude. She has a Guggenheim. She's a MacArthur genius, a Pulitzer prize winner, a winner of the national book award, the Penn Faulkner award, you know, it gets ridiculous, a legion of honor medal or whatever. <laughs> Uh, she's published in 116 languages. You can start to get psyched out by that, you know. But you have to let it go. If you're going to be talking to somebody as the host of a show, you have to find a way to deal with whatever anxiety comes up and you have to shut it off. I think if you come in too nervous, you'll do a bad job. Uh, you know, you have to be sort of strong on the air as the host. You can't be intimidated. And I don't know what you do. I think you just have to ignore it or just plow through. That's, that's what I do. 
And eventually you do it enough times, you kind of uh, learn that you can do it. So I think that answers it. I appreciate your writing to me, Glenn, and thanks for listening to the show. If you guys are out there and you have questions or you have thoughts to share, once again, the email address for this podcast is letters at otherppl.com. Okay, so once again, my guest is Wendell Stevenson. Her new novel, Margot, is available now from W.W. Norton and Company. It is the official February pick of the book club. Wendell Stevenson's writing has appeared in The New Yorker magazine, The Financial Times, and Granta. She is the author of a novel entitled Paris Metro, and she has also published three books of reporting. Wendell Stevenson is a very accomplished journalist, a foreign correspondent who for years has worked in some of the most dangerous and volatile places in the world, covering some of the biggest stories in the world. And you're going to hear us talk about that in this conversation. Born in New York and raised in London, Wendell now lives in France, which is where she was when we spoke. I had so much fun meeting her and talking with her, and I really enjoyed this wonderful new novel of hers. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Wendell Stevenson, and her new book, One More Time, is called Margot. Mother's American from New York, and my dad was English. They met in New York in 1968. I was born in New York. I'm a proper New Yorker. I don't like it when people walk slowly down the street. I need matzable soup when I feel sick, and and other New Yorker traits. But I grew up. They moved. I grew up in England. They moved when I was when I was a baby, and my two brothers were born in England. I grew up in London, so hence the English accent. But English people will occasionally cock their heads at me and sort of say, oh, where are you really from? Oh, your mother's American. Oh, right. That explains it. Because there's something about my cadence that doesn't quite sound right to them. But but um, no, I grew up in England. Okay. And a lot of Margot, your new novel takes place in Long Island. I'm imagining you were drawing on experiences from childhood in Long Island for the writing of it. Yeah, my mother and my grandmother, it's a, it's a matriarchy on that side of the family. And they come from Upper East Side, New York and North Shore, Long Island, and very much Oat Wasp, you know, country club and golf playing and tennis and cotillions and that sort of thing. And I would arrive this kind of foreign transplant, this Brit in the summer, always halfway through the summer, obviously awkwardly because the British schools get out at a different time much later than American schools so I would arrive halfway through and be sort of deposited at sports group unable to play tennis you know related to half the people but not really in with the group and certainly that milieu this sort of strange ethnic enclave of of wasp land in North Shore Long Island with its in those days, in the 70s and 80s, everybody, the men wore green trousers and the women wore lily pulitzers and headbands. And it was all quite sort of, you know, literal and alien and sort of funny and absurd to me. So very much drew on that for, for the setting of Margot. And what about the differences? Like if you come to Long Island for the summer and you're suddenly in this milieu, how different was it from where you lived and the people you were surrounded with in in England? Well, I mean, it 
it different culturally, different music, different stuff. I mean, it's really, it's not, um, it's not that it was impossibly different or, or alien. It was just more that it was alienating, you know, and that's just the function of being a kid who's gone from one group or one place to another that wasn't particularly welcoming, that wasn't particularly easy, wasn't very accessible to me. I wasn't very good at playing tennis. I remember my grandmother said to me rather sort of horrified as I refused to take another set of tennis lessons or something. She said, well, I don't know, you know, what are you going to do in life? You know, if there's no tennis, because there was this sort of idea that you chose one golf or tennis and that's what you did. And that was your thing in your spare time or on weekends or holidays or whatever. And the idea that I was sort of had refused both, both of them. Although I liked swimming a lot, I just didn't fit in very well. So that was, you know, a formative thing, but it not a very, I mean, I think many people, most people experience that as a child of being in a place where you feel awkward and, and other and strange and a bit friendless. So I'm always interested when I'm talking to writers to know about the point of origin, if there is one for their work. And Obviously, we're talking about your childhood experiences that you drew on in order to draw Margot, but I'm wondering how the book originated for for you, if you can point to it. Like, was it this character? Sometimes it's a name, sometimes it's a title, sometimes it's a first line. Was there something that you experienced that got you started? Well, it was a, it's a coming of age story. It's set in the 60s. And so as much as it's personal to me, very personal to me in many ways and there's a lot of me in Margot it's superficially more about my mother and my mother's generation who were born in the 40s and grew up in the 50s and 60s in a time when the assumptions about what you were going to be as a woman and who you were going to marry and the life kind of life you were going to lead were very circumscribed were very prescribed were very specific you know my mother had a coming out ball she wore white gloves to it. There were all sorts of strictures and mores about what you wore and where you would go and who you could go with and how you had to be chaperoned. And she got married, like most people in that pre-pill, pre-sex before marriage generation, you know, when she was 19. And all of her contemporaries, including her and her sister, you know, were divorced. The 60s changed everything for that generation of women. You could have sex where you couldn't before because the idea of pregnancy was completely horrific outside of marriage. And, and simultaneously, at some point, they changed the divorce laws in New York State and elsewhere in the US. And so you didn't have to go to Mexico or you didn't have to go out of the country to get a divorce anymore. And that became more of a reality. So it was this decade that always fascinated me because this, A, because I, I saw the impact it had on my mother and her generation, but also just the speed of social change and expectations seemed to me to be extraordinary. You know, there's that um, idea that JFK, when in his swearing in, was bareheaded and suddenly the next day everybody took off their hats, right? You look at photographs of crowds of people on either side of the Atlantic, in New York or in London or anywhere really, in the 40s and 50s and in the first part of the 20th century, and everybody is wearing a hat. You just wore a hat and gloves when you left the house. And suddenly everybody took off their hats. I always thought this moment was this sort of, how did that happen? When did everybody decide that that was going to be a sort of liberal, was it even a, a conscious liberal decision? I don't know, but it seemed to be emblematic 
of the way and the speed that things shifted in that generation that seemed really fascinating to me and interesting to follow somebody to follow a woman to follow a girl trying to grow up in that and navigate that the assumptions of where she'd come from particularly putting Margot in the milieu that I knew well this very upper class very baroque rather absurd and pompous and staid and stiff and sometimes quite I mean sort of amusingly so funny in many ways society and putting her in a in a in the middle of a decade full of upheaval and violence and change and riot and revolution and seeing what she she could make of it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty, and Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So in addition to this being a coming-of-age story, this is also very much, to me, a mother-daughter story. And the, the mother character in this book, Margot's mother, Peggy Vanderloop Thor- Thornson, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yeah. is quite, she's quite a character, like a very domineering, very unhappy woman who I think doesn't really understand why she's unhappy. No, I think that, you know, in some ways I kind of draw my grandmother a little bit for this, not entirely because you start in one place or you start with an idea or a shape of a character and then they turn into their own people as you're writing them. But my grandmother was really smart, really intelligent, entirely (laughs) uneducated, very capable, really organized and, you know, never had the chance to have a job, be out in the world. And I think was sort of frustrated in a way by that and limited in a way, but also very much in control of her house and her world and her family. So I think that it sort of describes, yeah, it's a different, you know, mothers and daughters are often difficult. And that was fun to grapple with and interesting to grapple with. But also the sort of, I think that Peggy is a woman who's trying to be in control because of her house and her family because she's not able to be in control in the real world, in the outside world, in the world that's dominated and 
controlled in her in her case and for many women like that you know by the people that you marry or the the fathers that you have you're subject to the circumstances of your birth and the circumstances of your marriage more than your own volition and what you can do about it and i think as the novel progresses and fortunes change for her you know she doesn't she can't adapt and that's i think hopefully sad tragic pitiable that she got stuck she got mm-hmm. stuck in a situation that she couldn't adapt out of yeah she's a tragic figure and i think you know you talk about margot being this smart awkward young person who as an accident of fate really is born into this time of great social upheaval and change and getting to watch her uh experience that is very interesting it's equally interesting and maybe even a little bit more poignant to watch her mother experience this because there's so much fear and i think it's like you say it's earned fear the time that she was born into and came up in was very diff- was very much different and i think she can't help but project a lot of those fears and concerns that she was raised with onto her daughter and I guess it's a classic tale, right? This generational struggle and the differences between the generations and the difficulties that they have trying to understand one another. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a classic tale. I think that in in Peggy's case, you know, it's scary to her. It's threatening to her. The world suddenly became cold and unhospitable when she had been, you know, had an assumed place in it, had a presumption of prestige, had a presumption of privilege that she hadn't even bothered to question. And when she's invited to question it or invited to look at it another way or forced to, she can't. And so there's this this desperation of trying to cling on to appearances. And that's just tragic, but also very human. You know, those those superficial trappings of status, the things you think that matter that people cling on to. I think that's that's ageless. And I think the yearnings of a young woman who's, you know, her daughter, who's unsure of herself, very unsure of herself clearly doesn't want to follow in her mother's footsteps, but doesn't have a very good idea of, of her own path. And I think I remember that a lot from my own late adolescence. You know, I also got like Margot got into a good college and that was great. And I'd sort of ticked that box. But what I was supposed to be doing with that was not at all clear. And the path was not obvious. And so I think that Margot in a midst, you know, she, you see her wavering being wobbly she's not um in some ways in some earlier early versions of the book she was she was a bit weedy and I had to kind of strengthen her a bit and given give her a bit of volition but at the same time I didn't want to make her too all-knowing too brilliant she doesn't come out on top all the time you know she's always second guessing herself and hanging back and is full of sort of regret and worry and she's she's a bit of a nervous Nelly and sometimes I I would get a bit frustrated with her and I'd have to sort of push her forward a bit and give her a repost and strengthen her, strengthen her spine <laughs> a little bit like her mother might have wanted to do in some of the scenes but it was funny how it was interesting to see her evolve in, through different versions of the book because she kind of grew up as I was writing her she got she got she came into herself as I was writing her um it was a yeah coming of age story written as a coming of age story also too that part of it was fun 
I, I found Margot to be an incredibly winning character and I thought drawn in a way that felt very believable and true to life. You know, sometimes I can get frustrated with young ingenue characters who are just too smart for their age. This happens a lot, I feel like, in fiction where there's a young, especially when there's a younger protagonist who is in some way a proxy for the author. <laughs> it's, it may be tempting as a writer to project too much of the wisdom that you might have accrued as you've, you know, grown up and, and then put it onto the, to the protagonist. But you do a nice job of giving her that insecurity and maybe the lack of knowledge and worldliness that any person her age is most likely to have. Yeah, no, she doesn't get it a lot of the time. And she's scared of it too. And um, she's kind of good at school. But she that worries her as well. And she's scared of the next step, you know, what's beyond the textbook, what's all the stuff, what's the, the, the university of life stuff, the stuff that you're supposed to know or be should be innate or intuitive. That stuff she's not good at at all. And she also understands as a scientist or as somebody who wants to be a scientist with those kind of ambitions that you need to be able to imagine beyond the border on the map you need to be able to push through that and she's very hesitant it doesn't come easily to her she would rather have you know a a a table of figures to learn and down pat and to recite than to try to form her own logic or theory and you know that's also i think a function of a sort of rather crabbed education which i think is also fairly universal you know we're all pretty much put through a certain sort of mill of exams and rote and essays and uh, tasks to complete and boxes to tick and so when she finds herself needing the extra tools the tools of imagination and of courage and of independence too she's not great at it she finds herself struggling with that, which I think a lot of us do. I mean, I very much struggled with that at university. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And nobody told me. So I flailed around a lot at university. Well, I think that flailing around at that age is kind of what you're supposed to be doing. I think there'd be, there's something a little bit strange to me about anybody who's 17, 18, 19 years old and is really on top of their game. <laughs> I know, that's true. Uh, you know, and I feel like, <laughs> Yeah, but at the but at the same time, I feel like you know maybe the 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 signals that we're getting at that age, the messages that we're getting from elders and from the culture is that we're supposed to know, and so we feel like we're lacking something because we don't. But goodness, that's like what that time of life is for, is it not? No, I, I mean I completely agree when you look back on it. But at the time, it feels very it feels awkward. It feels like you're floating around. It feels like you're sort of you know, splashing in the in the shallow end and and not getting to the other side of the pool. And I remember feeling, you know, in my early twenties, having graduated and sort of bounced around with a few jobs, and finding myself in Tbilisi, in Georgia, where I had gone to write stories. Absurdly enough, and I remember just having a sort of, you know, one of those you know, classic existential crises where you're like, I'm nothing, I've achieved nothing, I've done nothing, I'm 26 and I've done nothing. <laughs> you know, and now it seems completely ridiculous. At the time, it felt very emotionally real. You know? <laughs> so I think that's, 
that's also part of what I would think I was trying to convey in Margot is that that stuff hurts deeply you know when you're when you're that age you have no perspective by which to judge it you have and and Margot poor thing has no siblings either so she has she doesn't have anybody to bounce this stuff off she's kind of stuck in her own head and she doesn't it's hard to have perspective it's hard to to know what's experience and and you know what what experiences to take or to accrue and 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 how to become something when you don't know what that something is you know it's it's interesting to think about the time that she's coming up in again because as we've said it's this time of great upheaval and social change and neither of us lived through this time but i am and i think you probably are too based on the fact that you wrote a book about uh this period very much a fan of 1960s cultural history like that decade is an endlessly fascinating to me and what i find myself wondering as we talk is you know uh, clearly that decade is known for being this really dynamic period in history and a period that, that was like revolutionary in many senses and the speed of change was extraordinary and i'm wondering about my own life and times has it been boring by comparison is every era marked by revolutionary change i think sometimes history goes fast and sometimes it goes slow and i remember you know in the 90s thinking oh well this is interesting because not much has changed i remember thinking and in some ways, you know, people still wore trousers and shirts and suits and watched television and so forth and so forth. And then suddenly the internet arrived and then everything changed. So in some ways, you know, before that technologically and, you know, life for sort of 30 years or 40 years post-war, I mean, there had been, you know, different music and different trends and the skirts had gone up and down in length and so forth. But in lots of ways, not. And then recently a lot of more fundamental changes about where we work, how we work, how we connect, how we're concentrating, how we communicate. That stuff has has been lightning in the last in the last ten or fifteen years. Yeah, I feel like definitely that I mean at least the it seems like since what? The late aughts, it feels like things have picked up. It feels like a lot has happened since say two thousand and eight, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's also kind of, I mean, a lot has happened in the technological realm and technology is about communicating. And there's, I remember because I covered the Arab Spring for the New Yorker and I was in Cairo for two years in 2011 and 12. And there was a lot of talk at the time that those revolutions were fomented and encouraged by social media and Facebook posts and spread on and spread about in that way and that they were they had somehow been the you know the facebook revolutions but crucially for the first 5 days i think of the egyptian uprising they turned the internet off in egypt and people went out onto the streets word of mouth old fashioned style old school and i sometimes wonder whether yes the means has changed but is the message changing there's something to do with, you know, the speed of discourse and the speed of dissemination of information and the foment of it. But it's, I don't, it's hard to gauge whether it's more or less important than printing, the invention of printing and the dissemination of ideas that that engendered. 
Or I remember, I don't remember because I was little, but you know, the Iranian revolution in 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini's, who was in exile at the time, his speeches went viral, as, they, as it were, on cassette tapes that were passed around. So in a funny kind of way, I think people always had a way of communicating. There is a welter now that seems to be dizzying. And I do notice that because of the ease and speed and quantity of screen and um, media, just the quantity of media that I'm noticing, as I'm sure many people are, that my concentration spans are different. I'm reading less on a page, more on a screen. When I work, my bursts of concentrated work are shorter, more interrupted by spelling bee and things like that. I mean, I always did, you know, Sudoku or, you know, something, but it was on paper and there was something about the physicality or the tactility of that, that interruptive exercise that was a bit of a different quality, that seemed to be of a different quality or take up a different time space. But it's hard to know what weight or difference, how we judge the, the medium and the content, right? What, what effect is one having and what effect is the other having? So I want to go back to you as a child, uh, you know, around the same age as Margot growing up. You had mentioned earlier that going to Long Island in the summers, you would feel sort of out of place and everyone would try to foist a golf club or a tennis racket into your hands. And young Margot is much the same. She seems a little bit out of place and a little bit awkward. And she has this keen interest in the sciences. She's a science nerd. And I'm wondering if that squares with you as a young woman. Not remotely. Or if you were into something else. Like- not remotely. I'm not remotely science-minded. And I was quite annoyed with, with Margot for having an interest in science because I had to spend quite a lot of time reading up on it and educating myself about she's particularly into uh, genetic science and uh, DNA is discovered and when she's a child and this has she's very, this is what she's following at university in her studies and I, I spent quite a lot of time trying to well, reading books on DNA on the discovery of DNA on epigenetics on you know scissoring and CRISPR and how you can rearrange and um, um, edit genes and so forth and you know, it's it, it's hard for me. It was difficult for me to wrap my head around it and understand the differences in chemical sequences and what's really going on. And so the other thing that was difficult was having to then kind of rewind the technology and knowledge that we almost take for granted now in that field to the late 60s when it was just beginning and when it was very unintended embryonic. And to sort of rewind the level of knowledge back to a kind of, you know, a, an early stage where they had a much sketchier idea of, of what DNA was or how it functioned or what might be possible or, and so forth. And it was interesting in, in my peregrinations and falling down rabbit holes on web and looking, you know, typing endlessly DNA sequencing into YouTube or whatever, that there it's quite hard to find something that visually describes it and that visually illustrates DNA and what is happening. You either, you mostly get these sort of rather cartoon illustrations. And I realized somewhere 
along the line that there isn't a photograph of DNA, that it's too small to see, and that there isn't really a photograph of an atom because it's too small to see, even now. So we're, even now we're kind of extrapolating from various other observations and reactions that DNA has on things. So it was a kind of curious exercise in realizing how much we think we know and how much we don't or might not. So you can't even see DNA under like a really high powered microscope? I don't think so. I was not able to find a picture of this. Like maybe somebody will tell me this is wrong, but they they mostly look like, you know, very blown up sort of illustrative, you know, filled in diagrammatic drawing renderings of it. Yeah, well, I was very impressed with the passages in the book that dealt with biochemistry and genetics and all the rest. Like, it was very believable to me. And I kept wondering to myself, I was like, wow, this woman is a journalist. She's a novelist. Is she also a geneticist? It was going to be very disappointing to me or very, uh, what's the word, infuriating, if if that were the case. I'm relieved to know that it was all the product of research. <laughs> no, it's just research and make-believe. <laughs> that, that, that's, the, that's the joy of novel writing. Uh-huh. Well, well done. And I want to talk to you about the, the revision process that you took this book through, because I couldn't help but notice in the acknowledgement section that you thank your agent, Bill Clegg, who incidentally has guested on this show before, back when he was touring with one of his books. And you thank him for kind of pushing you through multiple revisions as an agent or an editor often will do uh, with an author on a project. And my question for you is what you gained from that process. Like what changed significantly in revisions that made the book what it became? I mean, he he just pushed and pushed and pushed. And it drove me, I mean, over the course of, I think, two years or more. And it kind of drove me crazy because I kept thinking, okay, is this okay? Is this okay? This is much better. Oh, I've done a lot of work now. And I think, I mean, at first he pushed me to refine it, to bring Margot to the fore, to define her character better, to streamline certain scenes, to, you know, there was definitely large sections that got chucked, you know, of sort of backstory of the family and various aunts and uncles that weren't needed and rather Baroque encrustations to the Vandalope family. So a lot of that got tossed by the wayside, which was good. And then it was just, you know, honing and honing and honing and, and rewriting scenes, certain key scenes between Margot and people over and over again so that they just the bones of it got polished up and the form just got leaner and more polished. And then the last few times, or the last couple of times, I remember it was sort of, it was almost fun because I just went out, I went through and just took out, you know, this paragraph isn't working, not this sentence, not this adverb, not this subclause. It was just taking out and taking out and taking out and just making it lean, uh, making sure that e that every sentence was doing something instead of you know, being ornamental and certainly, you know, getting rid of all those uh, writerly filigreed phrases that you tend to um, come up with when when you're getting lost in something when you're writing. But it, it, I think, you know, it's my second novel and at both times I've sat down and sort of started not knowing where I was going to end up. And I think that while that's sort of fun, it's messy. 
And I think the next one, I'm going to try and have a better idea of <laughs> what I'm doing and where I'm going. Not necessarily sort of exhaustively plotted out, but just a better idea of the shape of it before I start. Because although it's sort of fun doing it this way and you certainly discover it a lot. And certainly Margot is the product, her character is a product of a sort of, as I, as I said, a sort of gradual evolution. It you know it it was it, it was long it was it was hard to to revisit and go over it again and again with fresh eyes and fresh heart and enthusiasm you know you sometimes you're just like I think I wrote this already but it's also an exercise in there's always room for improvement there's always another level to take it to there's no end to revising yeah I mean I feel I feel like that frustrate that feeling of frustration that writers can experience when they've they've put so much time and energy into a project and they hand it off to an editor or an agent or a trusted reader thinking like this thing is done and there is this strange emotional need or drive in writers i feel like to externalize projects and to have them done like get it out of me <laughs> and then to hand it over and to have someone read it and come back to you and say no there's more work to be done it can elicit a frustrated emotional response it's awful it's not just frustration it's not frustration it hurts yeah. i mean it physically hurts <laughs> it takes like several days to absorb that it's a very fundamental rejection of your baby and it's not easy but i mean the annoying thing was is that he was right i mean i wouldn't have done it if i had not felt like he was right or what you know his comments were were acutely apposite and very much in the service of Margot and her characters. And so I, you know, I just pretty much did what he told me to do. And I was, you know, very lucky to have him guiding me through it because it's not easy to find a, re a reader who gets it and gets it as, as well as Bill does because he's a writer himself. So he knows, you know, what I think he, you know, he, he could see what I was trying to do and the early grapplings and the kind of misshapen clay. He was like, okay, there's a bowl in here somewhere. Right, right. <laughs> Let's hack at it until we find out what it looks like. Well, that's the thing. It's like this, frust There's, it's like a bookended experience. Like the, the first bookend is the frustration and the pain of having somebody tell you that it's not right. And then the, the bookend to that is the gratitude that you feel when it is finally done and done well to have had somebody who could see what you were trying to do clearly and had the decency to push you, even when they knew that it might piss you off. <laughs> no, I mean, very much so. But there is that kind of weird thing that when you're, when you're writing a book, particularly if it's a novel, I think you have, I don't know if it's just me, but I mean, I'm fairly convinced that it's the best thing that's ever been written while I'm writing it. Right. You know, I'm fair. You, I have this, you know, this kind of absurd sort of, belief that keeps you going because if you didn't otherwise you would just be you know halting and stuttering constantly through the pages but the minute the minute it's finished the minute it's sent to the publisher then I'm mortified then I can barely read it I can barely look at it I don't want to see it I'm just embarrassed and I have completely the opposite reaction it's quite funny and then two or three times it's happened to me that I've been you know, several years later, maybe 10 years later, I'm in a friend's house and I see a copy of a book of mine on their bookshelf and I idly pick it up and I 
read something that I hadn't even thought about in many years. And I think, oh, that's not that bad. (laughs) How did I know that? When did I know that? And then I revisit it. But it's a strange thing because while you're writing, you know, to be in that flow and in that stream, you have to be fairly, you kind of, I don't know, it's a a confidence trick on yourself, really, that this is good and keep going because there's a point to it. It almost feels like something like a biological necessity or something. The only way for writers to endure the process of writing a book is to have those moments of grandiosity where you're thinking to yourself, this is great. It's a masterpiece. I'm writing something brilliant because in the absence of that kind of belief or in the absence of that kind of hope, maybe, how do you possibly sustain yourself through all of the ups and downs and the years that it takes usually to get a novel done? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ridiculous undertaking. I think, I mean, I wouldn't do it if there was any plan B. I just, you know, I always wanted to write. It was the thing that I liked doing and that I was good at. And there was just never a proper plan B. I didn't, I should have, you know, become an account. I should have taken accountancy or learned how to code or, you know, I mean, had one of those good backup plans. But I didn't. So it's, I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's a bit compulsion. It's a bit you write because you want to record, because you want to say, because you want to tell, and that's the way you express yourself. It, you, it's a bit you're a bit stuck with it if you're a writer. You don't have an you don't. There's not a lot of choice about it. You have to make the best of it. So, in my research leading up to this conversation, I read something about you with respect to your writing and in particular with respect to your work on your book projects and how at least in the in the earlier books you had to kind of give yourself a mantra in order to get yourself through the project and to make yourself believe maybe that you could and I think for uh, the book about Georgia the country I think the the mantra was you're not wrong and then there was a book about, uh, you know, in, in Iraq, a, a work of nonfiction called The Weight of a Mustard Seed. And I think the mantra there was, you haven't failed yet. <laughs> and I'm wondering, did you have a mantra with Margot? I can't, did I have a mantra with Margot? I can't remember. I do remember, though, the first novel I wrote, I rem- my mantra for that was I remember just being like in a sort of fury and frustration with journalism. I remember being thinking, okay, I'm just going to write a novel. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to write 10,000 words a week until it's done. And my mantra for that one was look, walk into any bookshop. How many crappy, mediocre novels are there in here? Is there any reason yours can't be one of them? <laughs> I remember thinking, I was like, just lose this Tolstoy complex and get over yourself and just write something. Uh-huh. And Margot, what was it? I, th- I don't know. I think it was like, it's not over yet. It's not done yet. Meaning? Sort of keep going. It's not done yet. Partly the sort of, you know, wanting to be a writer, wanting to have a career doing that, wanting to have a certain success at it. You know, it's the fat lady has not sung yet. You're still on the road. It's still part of the process. Keep going, Mm. you know, and it's a bit like life. You know, you think you think you're going to get somewhere. You think that there is a summit to achieve. But it's all uphill. <laughs> it's the journey. It's just the uphill. Right. There isn't a summit. There isn't the other side. It's just, you just sort of, you know, it's not done yet. Keep writing. 
So you mentioned that you always wanted to be a writer and that you didn't have a plan B, which sounds familiar to me. And I've heard that from many people on this show before. Uh, you, you went off to college. I believe you studied it at Cambridge University. Is that right? I did. Yeah. And what did you study? Were you studying literature there? No, I studied history at Peterhouse College, which is the smallest and oldest college at Cambridge. I was not a great student. I was a bit lost. Uh, I found the curriculum rather narrow and the way of teaching rather lonely because they don't teach in classes as they do in American universities at Oxbridge. They teach in um, one-on-one tutorials. And I, I, you know, I made some friends and it was fine, but I didn't, you know, particularly excel or find my feet and, and left pretty much think I left in 1992. I remember in the middle of a recession have with no discernible marketable skill. I could not use a computer. I'd never used a computer. Uh, I could not speak another language. I was no use to anybody. So I, I went to New York. I followed a boyfriend to New York. Okay. So you followed a guy there. And then what did you do when you were in New York? I think I got one of those sort of funny jobs uh, working on a magazine that dealt with investment in Eastern Europe. And I did that for a while. And I went to Moscow for them. And then I ended up working as a receptionist at a literary agent where I met Bill Clegg. And then I ended up fact checking for Time magazine. And then they moved me to London. So I had a real job working for Time magazine in my late 20s in London. As a reporter. Yeah. And well, I started off as assistant to the editor and I made sure that I was not a very good assistant to the editor. And luckily he was a very nice guy. And so he quickly promoted me, not promoted. I mean, I didn't get any more money, but he sort of threw assignments at me. So write this book review or rewrite this story. And and he sent me a couple of places. I think I went to Moscow to report on nightclubs. This was in 1997 when Moscow was, a, was a, you know, an up and coming, exciting capital. And then I was there for two years. And then I thought, you know, I wanted to travel. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I wanted to be out in the world. I didn't want to be in the office. And so I sort of left on a big punt. And I said, I'm going to go and live in Tbilisi in Georgia. And my editor said, well, that's nice, Wendy. Do you think you'll be back at all? And I said, I don't think so. And I and I wasn't. And I, I have not had, I have not been gainfully employed really since. Okay. So wait, I want to ask you, Tbilisi, like what drew you there? Why there of all places? Of all places, you know, I mean, I think that I had spent, I, I was the generation that, you know, grew up in the Cold War. The wall, the Berlin Wall came down when I was 19. It was amazing. It was the end of history. It was a seminal moment. And we, I looked at across that great divide and thought what is going on on the other side who are those people what are they doing that just seems incredibly fascinating and interesting to me and I had been in Moscow a few times but Moscow seemed scary to me because it was big and a big city and quite cold in the winter and full of proper journalists and I felt a bit more kind of wobbly weevily and so I thought you know, I might just go to the Caucasus, which I had read about in Fitzroy MacLean and Arthur Kosler and other heroes of mine who traveled in the Soviet Union in the 30s. 
I might just go south. It seemed to me to be a sort of smaller place where I could, a smaller pond to splash around in. So I visited Tbilisi first for about 10 days, summer of 1998. It was a sort of flatline economy, no, almost no electricity, nothing was happening. The wars, it had a couple of nasty separatist wars and those had ceased. And so it was kind of quiet, but I mean, dead quiet. All the hotels were full of refugees from Abkhazia. And I remember staying at a guest house that was being run by this inimitable and legendary figure called Betsy Haskell, an American woman. And uh, she said, oh, Wendy, well, very you know, nice to meet you. What are you doing in Tbilisi? And I said, well, I don't know. I think I'm a tourist. And she said, oh, a tourist. Yes, she said, we had one of those last year, she said. So... <laughs> I I I sort of fell in with the right crowd. I went back. I moved there. It was a cheap place. You know, it was very cheap to live there. Um, I bought a old Neva Lada four by four and drove around the Caucasus and had lots of adventures and got lots of stories and wrote my first book. Okay. And were you working as a journalist? Were you filing stories for anyone during that time? I was occasionally. I did. Fi- I mean, I was still writing for Time magazine and. I did a few things for them, but not much. I was mostly, it was this rather indulgent but wonderful time just to read and think and listen and learn a bit of Russian and try and understand what writing was. And I remember trying to write short stories and it took me fully a year to kind of undo the Time magazine style that I'd been writing and to find a bit of a voice. It took longer than I thought. And it was one of those lessons in A, I could write a book and finish it and do it. And that was a sort of extraordinary thing to me, but also that that it took a bit of time, that it wasn't something that you could do in six months, that it took a little bit of time to get the voice right and, and quite a lot of full starts and shards and bits of stories that didn't go anywhere and you know sitting in the laptop so you've since gone on to live and work all over the world in particular in the middle east you've done a lot of journalism work on the ground in dangerous places syria afghanistan lebanon uh, often at times of conflict war you were in tahrir square in egypt during the arab spring correct I was, yeah, it was extraordinary. It was such an extraordinary time. It was thrilling. It was a great privilege to be there. And you just packed up and went as soon as you started to get the sense that things were going to turn? Like, how did you wind up there at that time on those days? On those days, I was in Jerusalem at the time. I'd gone there for two or three months just to sort of hang out. I had some friends there and I thought I wanted just to, I'd never been in Jerusalem and I wanted just to sort of see what what was what. And things started happening first in Tunisia and then in Egypt. And I just got that, you know, the thumpy feeling in my chest, that kind of, I want to be there. I desperately want to be there. And I didn't know how to get there or who would send me. And I remember I emailed three editors. You know, I, I'm right next door. I've been to, I've reported from Egypt before. I want to go, please send me. And I had a dinner party or I had people came over for dinner in Jerusalem and I washed up after they left and I opened my laptop to read my 
emails. It was one in the morning and I had, nobody had replied except for David Remnick at the New Yorker. And there was just two words, yes, go. And I was on a plane at six o'clock the next morning to get a connecting flight through Amman to Cairo airport that was not yet open or that was supposedly shut. And so off I flew. So these, yeah, it, I mean, it, it was, it <laughs> off I flew and landed. I was like, oh my God, now I have to report on this enormous story for this enormous magazine. And then you just take a very, very deep breath and go out and report. I remember he, he Remnick gave me the most good advice. He said, I said, what about this? What about this? Shall I do this? What this story? And I was trying to be helpful. And he said, just go and report the hell out of it. Just go report. That was, you know, just a very good elemental, just go listen, write down everything. We'll, you know, we'll figure it out. What about just from a logistical perspective on the ground in Egypt at that time? Uh, the internet, I think you said, was down for several days right around the time of the revolution or the the uprising. So if you're trying to communicate with an editor in the United States, for example, like was did that prove difficult? Like was the it, was the, it was just the nuts and bolts part part of reporting? Like, can you just talk about how you did it? Yeah, I remember. I think I arrived on day four or five. The internet was out and. Uh, they wanted something immediately for the website. And I wrote down my journey in from the airport, which was which was kind of interesting because it was through all these, the streets were very dark and the, there were checkpoints or barricades at almost every street by, by locals who were manning them with sort of hunting pistols and swords and billy clubs and burning braziers. And there was smoke hanging over Tahrir and you could kind of feel, you know, there was a very much an atmosphere in the place. And they wanted me to write something about that immediately. I had just arrived like half an hour later. And I said, I can't file. I've, there's no internet. And I, so I, I, dict, I, scrib, I wrote it longhand and dictated it over the phone. So that was, yeah, old school. I think we then ended up, if I, memory serves, they did turn the internet on or there was patches of it. It was very dodgy for a few days. And we ended up moving hotels because there was a, another hotel that had internet. I don't know how, maybe they had a satellite connection. I can't remember. But within a couple of days, I ha we had an internet connection. So one of the things that you wrote about this period of time in your life and in your career, I believe it might be from drawn from Circling the Square, which is the book that you wrote about this experience in Egypt. Uh, I'm going to read a line. If I'm mistaken in terms of the source, please forgive me. But you, you wrote, I began to realize that witnessing something did not give you any good sense of what had really happened. A bearing witness was the most unreliable narrator of all. So I found that really striking because I'm thinking to myself, wow, she was in Tahrir Square. She was body to body with all of these protesters and she saw it with her own eyes. And yet it, it is also relatable to me that even when you're right up close to it and it's right in your face, you still aren't seeing it. There's a huge amount to take in. And part of it is you can't see the woods for the trees. 
part of it is that you have no perspective because you're at ground zero. And part of it is that, you know, I think I wrote Circling the Square as a sort of an attempt to describe, you know, what it's like when you're when you're trying to understand something that's happening right in front of you and it's hard to see. And it's partly hard to see because you don't know what's happening yet. It, you know, history doesn't know what it's doing. A crowd doesn't know what it's doing. You know, what is intent? What is accident? What is happenstance? What is circumstance? What is these all sorts of strange and different forces, many of them accidental and haphazard are exerted in moments like that. And as, you know, there were, I think, nine days of demonstrations until Mubarak resigned. But then there was a year and a half after that until they elected a President Morsi. And then there was another year of of continuing instability until Morsi was deposed. And so throughout all that time, it was switchback, you know, what could happen, what forces were going to be on top, what who might win, in inverted commas, this situation or this country, or what they called the chair, the presidency. And, you know, you would talk to a bunch of people not a bunch of people. We talked to everybody you could find, from political commentators to politicians to ex-party members to, you know, uh, to people on the ground to activists to leaders, and and they didn't know either. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think I wrote circling the square as a, as a way to describe this fizzy melee that history can be sometimes, um, where. You want you you know you think you, you want to be able to comb out the strands of import and weight them appropriately in your analysis, but it's hard to see sometimes. I know that it was very hard to understand for several months after the initial revolution and the deposing of Mubarak that it was really the army that was in that was the the main power in that country. And even for Egyptians, it came, the realization came slower than you than you might think that this was the power behind everything, and that they what they wanted and what they were going to do was going to de- determine ultimately what happened. It wasn't clear at the beginning, and I think that that was a real lesson as a writer, as a journalist, to try and you know you you want to impose order on something, you want to understand what you're looking at. And you're sucked in by the romance and excitement often of a revolution. Certainly, we all were. It would have been very difficult. You would have had to have been hard-hearted not to have been swept away in that tumult and excitement of Tahrir. But I see it now because I've spent the last year or so, the last year a lot in Ukraine, and it's very easy and um, obvious to fall in with be on the Ukrainian side of course we want to be on the Ukrainian side this is quite an quite an easy one you know good guys against bad guys you know the defenders against the aggressors and so forth but it's easy to swallow the Ukrainian propaganda and the 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 plucky Ukrainians and to and to be sort of swept up by their optimism and their bravery and their fortitude and it's I've been out now for the last six weeks or two months and the further I am out of it the more I kind of cock my head and try and look at the situation a little bit with a little bit more of perspective and sit and think okay can the Ukrainians really win this how are they going to manage that you know what is you know what is the depth and strength 
of, of Russia, even though they look like they're clumsy and oafish and violent and, and um, not very effective or strategic. So I think that in all circumstances, it's, it's one of those kind of lessons, you know, it's the classic trite um, observation that the older you get, the more you realize that you, the less you know, the less you understand, the less you're able to discern some kind of wisdom or perspicacity or perspective. And that these sort of forces, particularly in war and revolution and riot, are very messy and always full of unintended consequences. I want to ask you about danger, as you mentioned it just now, because I think there have to be listeners who are hearing about your exploits as a journalist and your travels all over the world and the time that you spent in these places that are experiencing war and revolution about how you manage your own safety. It's, it's dangerous for anyone. I would imagine there are additional safety concerns being a woman, for example, in Tahrir Square. I know that there was a 60 Minutes journalist who was attacked, I want to say, when she was on the ground there. I, you know, I, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's a related point, but the, the real question is just like, what, what goes through your mind? How do you manage this? And what precautions do you take to protect yourself? Well, I'm I'm a fairly scaredy cat, so I'm not in the front line. I, you know, I try I try to be, you know, I've always been fairly cautious and sort of, you know, on the back on the back row, not the front row. I'm not a photographer. I don't have to be right up and in, in front in the trenches. I think you just different. Look, there are lots of different circumstances and lots of different situations, and there isn't one size fits all. You know, there are a couple of obvious things. If you're in a riot or a demonstration or a revolution on a square or something, you make sure that you've got an exit route. You don't stand with your back into a corner. You you, you pay attention to the mood of the crowd. You go and come back. And you know, there are certain sort of things that you try and sort of hover off to one side, come in again, go out again, you know. There are various things that you can do that are a little bit more sensible than rushing right into the middle of the fray kind of thing. And in war, you know, everybody has their own set of lines and that that are and comfort zones. And it's very difficult sometimes to sometimes you know, it's very difficult to be super intelligent about risk assessment. The Middle East got really difficult to operate in. I I remember I was in Baghdad in 2003-45 and at the end I had to leave because I was a freelancer. I just simply could not afford the kind of security infrastructure that was necessary because journalists and westerners were targets and when you, if you're the target it's really difficult to defend yourself against that. If you're not the target, for example, I covered the war in Lebanon in 2006 and in and in um, Ukraine, for example, then, you know, then it's simply a matter of, uh, not simply, but it's a matter of proximity to the exploding things. And you can make a reasonable decision about that. And in Ukraine, you can make a decision about whether to push forward or whether to pull back. That's the best you can manage. And the, how far you do either of that is is up to you and your your story and what you want to do or what you want to achieve or what you think is reasonable in that in that set of in that set of situations but i mean it's it's how to say 
yeah, you take a you take a risk assessment and you and you check check in with yourself. I was doing this a lot in the last time I was in Ukraine. I was in Kherson a fair amount. And it's like, okay, you know, is this okay? You you know, you check in with yourself and with your team, your translator, your driver and other people around you. Everybody feeling okay? Does this feel stupid? Do you feel worried? Do you want to stay here for a while? Do you want to bug out? You know, you just have to kind of pay attention to what your senses and your sixth sense is saying. But having said that, you can certainly be unlucky. But you just try and make the best the best decisions you can at the time. You know, it's reminding me of a book I read years ago by a guy named Chris Hedges. It's called War as a Force That Gives Us Meaning. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but he worked as a journalist in a lot of places like this, you know, where there was a war going on. And he wrote in a way that sticks with me to this day about how addictive war can be you know, for journalists, there's a ton of adrenaline involved and such a heightened sense of reality, I would have to imagine, that it's kind of like in that movie, uh, The Hurt Locker, you know, where the soldier comes back from, I want to say Iraq, and, you know, suddenly he's in like the grocery store looking at cereal. It's just like, what? You know, there's just a huge uh, schism (laughs) between the two world it's very exciting and very important and it feels like this and it is an extraordinary privilege to be in these in these places and to be able to see these things and listen to these stories and 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 be with people who are you know really facing the ultimate of life and death and and fear and consequences and it's it's you know there's a lot talked about the addiction of it and the addiction to the adrenaline of it and that's i think that's part of it for some people but it's also you know there's a there's also just a very sort of uh, rather more ordinary thing that if that's your job and you're a journalist you want to do a good job you want to get a good story you want to do well you want to report well you want to be thorough you want to go to the place that's important or where something has happened it's not quite as sort of junky adrenaline fueled rock star you know as sometimes it's portrayed it's really just people whose job it is that you want to and you want to do a, a good job you know if you're a journalist it's a way of you know, there's a lot of professional pride and competitiveness of pitting yourself against your peers and also against yourself and also you know, just you, you want to tell the story, you want to do well. And so when you're driving down that road and, <laughs> and there's a bit of bombardment or you're driving towards something that's a bit more in a frontline area, that's your, that's your motivation. Your motivation is not, I want to be adrenaline, this is really exciting. It's, it's like, I want to, that town has just been liberated. What just happened there? I want to know. You know, I'm thinking now, and forgive me, I don't mean to like uh, psychoanalyze you, but I'm like, you know, she goes out to these places, uh, exposes herself to at least some degree of danger. It's very exciting. And then she comes home to this quiet town in the northwest of France on the coast. It makes sense to me that you would be diving into the ocean in the middle of winter because you're probably like, I'm so bored. I'm going to go jump in the ocean no, when it's, it's... January. <laughs> no, it's, 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 I, I, 
I, I'm not a war junkie. I'm not a news junkie. It's just, you know, for me, having started my career, I mean, you know, the, the very first story I ever wrote was from Prague six weeks after the Velvet Revolution in 1990. You know, this is like the full circle for me, Ukraine. There is not often that I get that, that sort of thump in my chest of that I want to be there, I need to be there. Um, but I had it in Tahrir Square because I'd spent so much time in the Arab world and this seemed like an extraordinary explosion of hope. And I had it, I had it when, when Putin invaded Ukraine. You know, this was just an area, a moment, a, a piece of history that I just wanted to see. It felt like, you know, this is, it's like, it, it's as large and as dangerous as the second war, you know, and, and is hugely tectonic and, important geopolitically too but the stories there the stories of the ukrainians the stories of what's happening are you know are really intense and interesting and amazing to witness so but it is unbelievably important that i come home and walk along the coast and just look at the sea and breathe and make soup and say hello to my neighbors and have this very quiet decompression that's been an extraordinary thing to come back to. Very different, but very important to have the balance. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit like reporting and novel writing. You know, one is sort of very, you know, reporting, you're talking to people all the time, you're listening all the time, you're trying to tell someone else's story. And novel writing, you just get to kind of kick the wall down and freely roam through your own imagination and your own thoughts. And I like the yin and yang of that too. One informs the other. Well, I want to talk, I know it, uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I want to talk about the shift that you made from writing nonfiction, writing journalism to writing your first novel. And in my research, I learned that you were supposed to appear with Anthony Bourdain, I believe on his show or on one of his shows in Georgia, the country of Georgia. Yeah. And this was when the Char the Charlie Hebdo attack took place in Paris, correct? It was the Bataclan attacks that were that were later, I think they were in October. Am I wrong? They were October or November. So Charlie Hebdo, um, that sh that shooting I think was in January 2015. And then later that year uh, were the Bataclan attacks when a group of militant Islamist gunmen went throughout Paris and opened fire on several restaurants, tried to attack, do you remember the football match in the Stade de France, and then ended up opening fire and taking hostage in the Bataclan Theatre where there was a, a concert going on. And there were, you know, over 300 dead. So, so yeah, I, I was in Tbilisi, apparently, <laughs> supposed to be Anthony Bourdain's interlocutor on his Georgia episode. And I woke up and I was like, I had that feeling doesn't happen very often but I know you know not to ignore it when it does because once I ignored that feeling and it was awful and I just knew I was in the wrong place and I just rang his producer and said I'm just so sorry I've got to go and I got on a I got on a plane and was back in Paris that night and reported the next week through the next week yeah but the book project that emerged from that experience at least to some degree was not a work of nonfiction it was Paris Metro your first novel yeah, no, so I was supposed to be writing a non-fiction book about Charlie Hebdo. 
and those attack that attack and so i had been talking to all sorts of people about terrorism and what had happened and different aspects of that so so the fact that it happened again meant that i i sort of professionally wanted to be there for it but i i remember reporting through that week and just being incredibly frustrated with the with somehow with the reporting it just seemed too small to me too narrowly defined and i remember going out to dinner with Ian McEwan and we were talking about all sorts of things and of course the attacks because they just happened and of course the whole sort of at that time the big and grand and complex debate about Islam and Islamism and Islam in the West and all this sort of thing. There's issues that I've been grappling with for years throughout the Middle East and the wars and revolutions and so forth and I just remember thinking this was such a, you know, I remember being so impressed with Ian McEwan and so impressed with his erudition and his breadth of intellect and also the fact that he took us out to dinner in this delightfully delicious, marvellous restaurant. And I just remember thinking, I want to be Ian McEwan. I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> it was also 2015. It was a time when journalism was, you know, in the gutter. It was impossible to get commissions. I was having to pivot. I was in a slat. I was in a kind of trench of trying to trying to pitch stories. Nobody wanted to send me anywhere. Syria was too dangerous to go to certainly as a freelancer and and so I was I was casting around and a bit lost and a bit you know furious with trying to report and not getting anywhere as I felt and so I thought you know sod this I'm going to write a novel and I and I I I said all right I'm and I'm going to do this really fast I'm going to write 10,000 words a week until it's finished till I've got 100,000 words go which is insane of course I was a complete you know stream of consciousness drivel came out but but it but I did it and and then I had to rewrite it a lot obviously wow and now here you are with the publication of your second novel Margot which you know as I was saying earlier in the conversation has this great classic feel it, you know, I, I keep it's like it feels like it was written in another time almost. And what it makes me wonder is what you read. I'm curious to know what kinds of books like fed you as you set about to write Margot. I mean, I think having written my first novel, which was a, which was about war reporter and a, a lot about the Middle East and set against the Bataclan attacks and so forth, it was a kind of uh, expiation of of fifteen years of of my journalistic life, and so I had sort of got that out of my system. And now I and, and turning to this one, it was you know it's a it's an interior story, it's a family drama, it's a coming of age, it's a sort of fairly classic. I wanted to write a sort of the the classic. Who does she end up with? Do you know what I mean? The sort of little bit of Jane Austen or a suitable boy by Vikram Seth that I love that novel. A very kind of classic tale. Uh, no bells and whistles. Let's not sort of get postmodern or overthink it or reinvent, you know, the genre or something. Let's just do a, a good story well told. And having written the first novel, I had a little bit more confidence and a little bit more understanding. You know, you get better with this stuff. It's a technique. It's like carpentry of fitting and joining and piecing together and matching characters and developing and so forth. 
sanding. And so, yeah, I, I wanted it to be to read like an old fashioned novel. I wanted it to read like the novels that I grew up with, the mid-century ones, whether it was, you know, the sort of writers that nobody reads anymore, like Neville Shute and James Michener and people like that. I mean, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of Graham Greene, that just, you know, you're less aware of a, of a, of the art than you are of the of just wanting to turn the page i think that's what i i wanted to do i just wanted to write a good story well that brings me to the second word like i kept thinking classic i think some of it has to do with the time period that the story is set in it brings you back you know to maybe a different era in literary history too but the other word that that came to mind uh, as i was reading this novel was engrossing this is a totally engrossing story it was a delight to read. I was fully into the world. I was rooting for Margot. I didn't know who she was going to end up with. And I, I won't spoil it for listeners, but it's a lovely book. And it's a lovely story about being female. It's a, it's a story about womanhood. And in particular, at a certain point in, I guess, recent history, um, definitely a vivid and moving depiction of what it was like to come of age as a woman in the mid 20th century and in particular the 1960s thank you yeah no i i it's the most personal book i've ever written it's not about me it's not about autobiography but it's not autobiographical at all but it's interior and tender and i wanted it's written in the third person but it's written from only one point of view you know i wanted it to be very much your inside margot's head and at times that's a sort of confusing place to be but i wanted to sort of to you know to touch the universal with the individual right you i hope that readers might recognize themselves in her and her tribulations and her hopes and expectations and experiences so i always ask my guests before i let them go if they're working on anything else I, you know if there's something in the pipeline it's perfectly fine if there is not but do you have a sense of what's next do you have like a hope or like a, do you have a sense of like the next three books that you want to do or anything like that? I have, I have like lots of books stacked up like airplanes, you know, over JFK, but there is one project that I'm in the middle of right now that is, it's a novel, it's fiction. I know exactly what I'm trying to do. It will be very interesting if I achieve it, <laughs> but I'm kind of excited. I'm writing that bit. I'm writing that bit where I, where I, where I'm sort of, 25,000 words in so you're kind of beginning to really really feel it you're beginning to flow you're beginning to kind of you know have a sense that you know what you're doing and I, I don't want it to be too long I want it to be sort of fairy tale-ish that's kind of a corny way of saying fairy tale isn't quite right but no I'm, I'm curious to see if this experiment of me thinking I know I'm knowing what I'm doing before I'm started works better than the last two times any hints as to what this new one is about? No, it's too new. It's too, it's too unformed. Sure, sure, sure. And then last question, uh, since you've done so much work in nonfiction and journalism, and now you're working on your third consecutive novel, I'm wondering, are you done? Do you feel like you're done with the nonfiction books? No, not at all. I think it's just, you know, I think... I now feel like I some things you want to explain or tell in 
in nonfiction and some in fiction. And I think that I it's really fun um, to be able to choose. And I feel increasingly confident about the fiction. So that's that's been a long time coming. And so that's exciting. That feels good. That feels more solid under my feet now. Well, Wendell, I appreciate so much the time talking to me, especially since there's the time difference between here in Los Angeles and you over there in Brittany. And it is in Brittany, right? I have that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate the time. In Finisterre. Do you speak French? The the end of... Well, yeah, pretty badly. Okay. I I have... Uh, Moi aussi. Moi aussi. (laughs) (laughs) C'est pas exactement comme non. It's it's a lot better in Brittany than it was when I lived in Paris. The the Bretons are very patient with me and correct me gently. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I really appreciate the time. I will let you go. Congratulations on Margot. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Wendell Stevenson. Her new novel, Margot, is out there now from W.W. Norton and Company. It is the official February pick of the book club. You can find Wendell Stevenson on the internet at wendellstevenson.com. And you can follow her on social media. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Wendell23. Once again, the new novel is called Margot. Go get your copy. Read it. Read it on the train. Read it while you're traveling. Or read it at home. Just read it. It's a really good book. If you would like to sign up for the book club, you can do that at thenervousbreakdown.com. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this podcast. Don't forget to support this show if you love this show. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, as little as $1 a month. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help me keep this thing going. If you would like to get my once a week email newsletter, it is free. Sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, please rate and review this show wherever you listen to this show. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, what have you. Give the show a rating, write a little review. If that's an option, it helps. If you would like to watch this conversation, you can do that on the Other People YouTube channel. Go search for the show by name, Other PPL, over at YouTube. And when you find the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch clips or highlights on TikTok and Instagram or on Twitter. The handle for the show on Twitter is at Other PPL. If you would like to email me, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my novel, my new novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's not that new. It's my latest novel. It came out last year. It's available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to hear me read it to you, I'll do that for you. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So up next on this program, I believe is going to be a conversation with Charmaine Craig, who has a very buzzy new novel out on Grove, I believe, called My Nemesis. So this will be my second time talking with Charmaine Craig. Very excited to welcome her 
back to the podcast. Stay tuned for that. I will talk to you shortly. Thank you.